Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have, for the fifth time, Father Robert Sirico. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. I can hardly wait. I, I purposefully did not read the book until this week, because I and then I started it on Tuesday, and I devoured it. It was... It was it was it's it's so amazing. So, but but get let's get to Father Sirico. Okay, Robert Sirico is a Catholic priest and the co-founder and president emeritus of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, and the pastor emeritus of Sacred Hearts Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome back, Father. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Well, you know, you can retire from uh, Acton and uh, Sacred Heart, but you can't retire from appearing on this show. <laughs> <laughs> we won't let you. <laughs> And now you're tied with Rabbi Daniel Lappin at five each. So, um, tied, tied, yes. Um, so, before we get to your book, Father, do you have any updates that you can share about Jimmy Lai? Uh, well, I can tell you that uh, there was another hearing, uh, and he's still in jail. Um, and we're just waiting to hear. I, I do know that he receives communiques, which I won't elaborate on, and that he is reading a very healthy diet of uh, spiritual literature to teach him uh, how how to cope with this situation, how to how to thrive in the context of um, of imprisonment. I mean, this is not something new in the history of religious persecution. Right. I, thanks for asking about him, though. Do you know anything about how his family's holding up? They're doing well. I know that Sebastian, his son, who I remember when he was a little kid, but now is evidently, uh, I know that he received an award in Jimmy's honor, and uh, I know he's been invited other places, and I understand that Teresa's holding up, but very discreet. They want to be very careful about what they say because they don't want to compromise her ability uh, to be able to visit her husband, which she does. Excellent. Well, thank you. I just we're we're we've been following it, as you know, and I know you guys have a movie. Is yeah. is it uh, that you're premiering at the Acton University, right? Well, yes. Uh, it's called the Hong Konger, and we are showing it in private screenings uh, in various film festivals. Uh, oddly enough, it's been accepted at the first level of the Hong Kong Film Festival. I don't know if it's going to go <laughs> to the next level, but I said if the, if they accept it, I will I will go and present it in person. Uh, wow. And the new president of the Acton Institute, Chris Mauer, said, "Yeah, you you can go. You may not end up coming back." Jimmy's <laughs> oh, next to Jimmy's cell. That wouldn't be a bad place to be. <laughs> well, your latest book, "The Economics of the Parables." I just loved it. It's timeless. It's profound. And I, I guess to level set, can you explain the difference between a story, a fable, an allegory, and a parable? 
Well, a, a fable usually is something that deals with fantasy. Um, it's something that you, you don't read and think, well, this is going on in a real world. Um, we have a lot of those from, you know, Aesop's fables or a number of the stories of the Greek gods and things like that. Um, a parable, it comes from the, the Latin and the Greek, which means to put side by side. So it's a comparison. And what Jesus does is use the mundane and real circumstances of life to point us beyond uh, the real circumstances of life to point us to the eternal. And I think that's one of the things that gives them such um, such an enduring quality is that anyone, anywhere, any culture can understand and what's what the lesson is, what's going on here and how it applies and can take a challenge from it. They're really incredible in their subtlety and very often in their um, ambiguity. I say that because the 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 vacuums that exist in certain of the parables leave room for meditation and imagination, which is what really uh, enriches our spiritual life. Yeah, and and you estimate that there's between a hundred and two hundred of them and found in. That's what some of the commentators say. I have to confess, I'd be hard pressed to find uh, two hundred. But uh, it depends on how you define a parable. But I think generally, uh, you know, 30 or 40 that we could name. Uh, and I only chose 13, and I already could put another three or four in there that relate to the economic dimensions of life. Some, you know, I guess you could stretch it and say they have an economic. This is the, these are the most obvious that I saw. Right. And I just love it because they, they seem to endure because human nature hasn't really changed all that much. And like you say, they reveal the way we live and the way we ought to live. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we're still buying and selling and worrying about uh, inheritance and property and contracts. And we're envious about people who, uh, uh, you know, get more than we get. Uh, all of those kinds of things are things that are, are dealt with in the parables. Yes, I, I, and I loved what you said about that they are as contemporary as any modern business ethics course. And as somebody's taught ethics for the last 20 years, that is so true. Thinking yeah. of introducing some of these <laughs> into that course, which is really difficult to do. But I, 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 case studies, right? I mean, those are kinds of parables. Uh, they're actual studies, though. Um, right. The um, parable of the hidden treasure Yes, I, I, and I just love the way you weaved in some economic explanations into all of these as well. You say the treasure stored because of an uncertain future, and treasure is often a metaphor for wisdom in Scripture. Yes. Can you kind of explain that? Well, um, sure. I mean, it's obvious, you know, we think of treasure, Solomon uh, asked God for one thing. He asked for wisdom. Uh, when, when you think of the things that are most valuable to us, it's not the data. And perhaps in the contemporary circumstance, we get it confused. We think if we just have the information at our fingertips. But it's not the data about things that satisfies us. It's the wisdom. It's the meaning of the data. And what the hidden treasure does and is use, as an example, the capacity of human beings to speculate 
because that's really what this man is doing. He's speculating as an entrepreneur. I think in a way, it's an image of the entrepreneur and that he discovers something. That's what entrepreneurs do. Israel Kirzner talks about in his book on uh, entrepreneurship. And he discovers this treasure that's right there that people walked over perhaps every day of the week and didn't realize it. And he comes upon it and um, I'll use the phrase takes advantage of the circumstance. And then it even presents some what might be considered ethical dilemmas. Well, what do I do? Do I tell the owner of the field that I found something of great value in the field? I was once in a, a junk shop or a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? An antique store. I would hardly call it an antique store, but it, you know, it was a junk shop. And I was with a, a British friend of mine and we noticed that there were this woman was holding a cup, a teacup in her hand. And my friend, I could see his face turned white as a ghost. <laughs> and uh, he said, look at that, look at that. He was trying not to be conspicuous. And I'm, so I'm looking at this teacup, I said, yeah. He said, that's from, uh, uh, who was the, um, who was the king who married Simpson? Uh, George the, King, George, King Edward, King Edward. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, so what's the big deal? He said, that's a coronation teacup. I said, so? He said, he was never coronated. <laughs> he said, that would be worth something. He was waiting for her to, she finally put it down. He rushed over and took it and bought it for you know, a few dollars. And I don't know what the real value was. Did he have the obligation to tell the proprietor of that shop that there was an heirloom in there? He did not. Uh, it might have been nice if he had done it. It might have been charitable. It might have been etiquette. But he didn't have the obligation. That's what this man finds himself, the one who finds the hidden treasure. The, the seller needs to be aware as well as the buyer. What you're selling, uh, you need to know what you're selling. And uh, this man comes upon this and, in a sense, takes advantage of it. Uh, and we use this phrase, taking advantage. You know, they, they often say, well, people, you know, Hospital systems are taking advantage of people's sickness. Well, that's true. And restaurants are taking advantage of people's hunger. And hunger. <laughs> clothiers are taking advantage of people's nakedness. You could look at it that way. But it's also service. Uh, that treasure would not have been in, brought into social utility until this man had that field and had the control of that treasure. And I think all of that, uh, you know, the social benefit comes by the treasure being discovered, not by it being hidden. It didn't have any value until someone saw the value in it. So it's a lesson in attentiveness and vigilance. You see how the two go together. I try to do this with each of the parables to bring this economic awareness, which with which I'm somewhat familiar, but also the theological, uh, the uh, teleological, if you will, the, the pointing toward heaven, if you will. Right. No, it's, it's excellent. And like you say, some, these can raise so many other questions that maybe are unanswered, but they really, yeah. really make you think on many different levels. Like the parable of the sower, for instance, you, you talk about how in a strict sense to profit only means to avoid making a loss. And I've never seen it expressed this way, but you say economic value is subjective, but virtues are objective values. Right. And this is this is the thing that I think confuses a lot of people when they see the market, especially religious people and morally sensitive people. 
they see the market and they think that everything by virtue of some things being sold on the market that everything is reduced to the economic value of things and there's something wrong about that in their mind and they're absolutely right because economic value is only subject it only is what is useful what is good for me for my use what i know about it uh and virtue is something that's good for everybody and when you conflate the two and think that the market is about virtue rather than about uh, the subjective utility of things, then you get all confused. And I think that's the confusion of categories that we see very often in debates about the uh, moral validity or moral potential of a market economy. Right. Now, that, that, that's a profound point because people argue that certain things have intrinsic value. I, we've heard gold and but no, there's no such thing as intrinsic value. It's all subjective. Not, not on the economic level. No, not at all. This this was Marx's point, of course. You see, um, uh, he thought the value of something was the time uh, and labor that goes into the production of whatever the product is. Uh, and maybe this is why the to, to jump to another parable for a second, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, why those laborers who worked all day thought they should be paid more than those who worked less, because we put more into this. But to the owner of the vineyard, uh, the value was in getting the harvest in, and he needed to get enough people on board. And there's a lot else in that parable, by the way, uh, right. about justice and generosity. But uh, th this is the Marxian notion uh, which is contrasted to the subjective labor value theory. Right. Well, Father, I know that Ed's got lots of questions on the laborers in the vineyard, as do I. But uh, unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our Patreon channel where you can become a member. That's patreon.com slash tsoe. And that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Be kind to your mind, hire one. Check them out at 90 Minds. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. 
Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My my Fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back with father robert sirico in his book the economics of the parables on the soul of enterprise and and father ron teed the laborers of the vineyard up for me so i do want to uh, talk a little bit about this one but you know, for, to, for those that are not familiar with this parable, uh, so the, here's here's the quick gist of it: the Reader's Digest extremely condensed version <laughs> uh, of a, a a man wants to get his harvest in. He hires laborers in the morning, agrees to pay them one day's wage. They work. He says that he he goes out and finds people uh, three or four more times during the day and hires them as well, but he doesn't tell them how much he's going to pay them. Then at the end of the day. He goes to pay them, and in, uh, on purpose, he pays the ones who, who started last first, who were only hired, in, as the scripture says, in the 11th hour, and they receive a full day's pay. And then everyone else receives a full day's pay, including the people who were first hired. And the first people who were first hired are, complain about this and say, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't fair. And he said, well, wait a minute, you agreed to this wage. What's the problem? And um, that he, he we, you agreed to this, and that's the the story that we need to then unfold. And as you put it, Father, there's a drama in this story that is palpable even through two thousand years. As you're reading this story, you can just you can feel the drama in it. <laughs> it it's the thing. It, it really this parable, and there are a few others. It really ticks people off. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> from Jesus and they don't quite like it but they're kind of constrained <laughs> because after all Jesus but I had one uh, man uh, one priest as a matter of fact at a seminar where I was teaching on this uh, and he got up and he said you've got this meaning of this gospel all wrong uh, he was unjust the the uh, the man who it's a whole lesson of injustice Unjustice, and uh, especially at the end, you know, where where the uh, owner of the vineyard says, "Wait a minute, uh, was it not my property to do with as I wanted?" To? And it's pretty harsh in that in that regard, or very direct. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is all from the mouth of Jesus, and I I don't happen to believe Jesus is teaching economics here. I think he's just teaching human relationships and the priority of. Um, uh, utilizing things that are scarce. What what became so important to this man, the, the owner of the vineyard, was the whole picture. He had to get the whole harvest in, so it became uh, marginally more important for him uh, to make sure he had enough workers. And isn't this ripped from the headlines, right? <laughs> the shortage of labor. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, 
and of course, it, again, it teaches us the lesson of the um, subjective uh, cost of things, including services, mm-hmm. not just products, but services as well. Well, and and perhaps, you know, as you say, he was trying to get the harvest and perhaps he knew or thought there was a frost coming that night and the crops would have been destroyed. So the marginal utility, so to speak, I know I'm applying economics terms, would have been more for those hired at the 11th hour. That's just the reality. You're exactly right. And what would have happened had the harvest not been taken in or if it was just taken in by those who worked for, you know, the the one part of the day? Uh, it would have meant that not only wouldn't the property owner gotten the value out of it, but all of the people who he was supplying, whose needs he was supplying, wouldn't have gotten what they needed out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, yes. Uh, well, that too is very instructive. And I, d- I did do a blog post on the on the Verisage website, which is sort of the, the precursor organization to the Soul of Enterprise when this gospel came along one year. And I said, and I called it Value Pricing Sunday because what, what it's about is Ron, Ron and I have done a lot of work with professionals who bill by the hour, which is, as we tell them, they're practicing Marxists. They're practicing Marxists, but when they bill by the hour. Right. <laughs> Um, so we were trying to get them. No, it's not. It's 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 based on really the value to to the customer. But do talk a little bit about the the envy piece of this because I think that is the thing that's often mis misunderstood. That there's an envy element of this to the first the hires the workers that were first hired. That that's thank you for that because that's really to to my mind it's the gravamen of the the whole parable. It's the core of what we we want to discuss here because and and. The owner of the vineyard says that to them. And what are you envious, or as the King James Bible puts it, is your eye evil because I am generous? And it is a lesson in the gratuity of God. Uh, it is everybody was satisfied with the deal that they accepted from the master. The people who began at the beginning of the day who were told specifically how much they would get, which was the usual day's wage. And then the others who came with more ambiguity, I'll pay you whatever is just. Uh, And what changes is not the objective situation, but the subjective comparison. So what is it that sends these workers who worked the whole day home miserable rather than content? It's their envy. Uh, And that's a great lesson. And as I was writing this, the other lesson in this regard that came to my mind was the the lesson of the good thief on the cross, who we say steals heaven. You know, at the last moment, he gets into heaven. Uh, Peter has to go the whole rest, another 30, 40 years of his life um, and get beheaded, or I'm sorry, crucified upside down. Paul gets beheaded. And this guy gets into heaven, having come right from his theft. <laughs> gets gets the, gets the, the the shortcut, so to speak, I suppose. Although crucifixion was, you know, no picnic, so to speak. So either, right. either way, um, turning to the to, to the next one, which uh, the the parable of, of the rich fool, and I have quoted often on Facebook. Uh, this, especially when when people start to talk about redistribution, the what I'll call the preamble of this which is the Luke 12, 13, and 14, where the brother says, hey, uh, says to Jesus, hey, 
master, divide my inheritance, have my brother divide my inheritance with me. And Jesus gives him a very unexpected reply, which is, who made me judge or divider over you? And I just love that that that, that preamble. Man, it ticks a lot of people off when you <laughs> use that as a response to re- redistributionism. No, it, it, it's, it's really something because the parable, the lesson is so separate from the parable, you know? Yes. You've got the parable, which is relatively short, just adjudicate this case for me. And then he talks about calculation. Mm-hmm. And what are you storing up? And are, are you going to be able to accomplish what you set out to do with what you have to accomplish it? And it's, um, it, it's, a, it's another example of how Jesus takes a, a, a common human circumstance and really amplifies it uh, for, our, for our meditation. And and talk about the, the this notion that it's really um, th- this family conflict that I, and and I've seen it play out in in ma- many families especially and you mentioned in the book you say in my pastoral work, pastoral work I've encountered family members who preferred to walk away and allow their siblings uh, to have what they wanted and um, th- th- this that I think un- sadly that is far too common. Yeah, it it is. It's amazing to me. I mean, how many times I've seen this in families where the wealth destroys the relationship or the um let's say the um addiction the attachment to the wealth and it's certainly more than than uh the value of the thing itself because somebody you know could be a dish that has no value on a market but is an ego value sometimes people are working their own relationships out through the um the economic uh you know, situation. I have some uh, advisors here that you hear in the background. Yes. <laughs> That's Barnabas and Theophilus, my two dogs. But, uh, and they wanted to make sure that I wasn't committing any heresies as I was telling this to you. But how we can deflect our attention from what is really valuable in the family uh, can be destroyed as a result of this. Um, it's, it's also a lesson in, in storing things up, you know, uh, and... Uh, uh, and not placing the proper value on things that are tools, and this is this I think is what is is missing from people who become so fascinated with the uh, the bauble that yes. they lose uh, its proper function. And you quote Saint Ambrose, who who tells us, "Virtue is the companion of the dead. Mercy alone follows us, and mercy alone gains abodes for the for the departed." In the end, this man did not possess too much. You say. But he possessed too little. I thought yeah. that was, beautiful. and I speculated, and I didn't really do. I couldn't find the research on this, but I'll bet you this is where that phrase comes. You can't take it with you, because mm. uh, that's what Ambrose is referring to here. Oh. It can be the companion of the dead. You you can take something with you. <laughs> yes, like the the the, the every man, the story every man. You take yes. your good work. You take your good works with you. Exactly. Well, Father, this is flying by. We are up against our break. I want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ron mentioned that the show is sponsored by 90 Minds, and our, our I'm sorry, our, our Patreon channel is, is sponsored by 90 Minds. But at a certain level, you can join our Patreon channel and get a shout out like Blake Oliver from Earmark CPE did. And you can find Blake's work at Earmark CPE. Blake was a recent guest on The Soul of Enterprise, so I suggest that you check that one out as well. But right now, a word from our sponsors. 
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Father Robert Sirico talking about his latest book, The Economics of the Parables. Father, you were talking with Ed about the parable of the rich fool. And I just, I, I, lo- I love that one because you talk about in there the, uh, I think you quote a writer from the Huffington Post who, and I've heard this argument so many times, was in Jesus. Times. W- was Jesus a socialist? Washington. Oh, Washington. Have been first things, yeah, yeah, yeah. or it, yeah. Forget the where yeah. he wrote it, but you were you were kind of explaining was Jesus a socialist? So unpack that for us. Yeah, this is the common uh, trope, isn't it, uh, uh, about Jesus? Because he was he taught generosity, he taught the church to be generous, he taught Christians to be generous, not to be attached uh, to wealth, to to have a certain detachment and everything, and. Um, it, this, to his mind, tells us that uh, wealth is intrinsically evil and that what we have to do is be like the early church and be socialists. And uh, I, I think I quote in that context uh, what I think is just the wittiest, most succinct refutation of that notion, and that's Winston Churchill from 1908, if I remember the speech correctly, where he says that the socialists of the early church, the Christian socialists, said, everything that I have is yours. And the socialists of today say that everything that is yours is mine. And that really tells you the difference. Sure, there's a social, there's a social dimension, a generous dimension to Christianity. But the whole virtue of the thing is that you surrender it uh, freely. And uh, the um, the fraudulence of socialism to 
to say that uh, it's a more moral system is seen and that it's predicated on coercion, whereas all virtue requires freedom. You have to act freely in order to be virtuous. You don't just kind of mistakenly be virtuous. Right. Uh, you know, Thomas Sowell likes to say, what's my fair share of your earnings? Uh, <laughs> uh, and and th what you just said really comes through in the Good Samaritan parable, mm. because he did act out of his own volition. He used his own resources, his own money to take care of the poor person on the side of the road. So explain that one, because I, I, that, that's another one that's profound. Well, it's amazing to me how often that parable is employed by advocates of liberation theology uh, or the welfare state to say this is the model for the welfare state uh -huh. when if you read it if you exegete it as we use in uh, biblical studies you exegete something you pull the meaning out as opposed to eisegeting which is where you put your own meaning in uh, if you exegete the passage, what you have, the power of the whole story is that the man is proximate to human need. He, first of all, risks himself by stopping for the man where the other religious leaders pass by in the, in the parable. And he stops because he could have been another victim of, of these thieves. And then he takes out his own medicinal supply, his oil and his water. He begins to tend to the needs of the man. And he hoists him on his own beast, it says. And he trans, uh, transmits him to, uh, transports him to the inn uh, where he knows the owner and says, here's the money, take care of him. And if you spend any more, I'll obligate myself. Well, on the way back, I'll uh, take care of whatever you've spent. This is charity. This is not bureaucracy. This is love that is proximate and personal, not distant and bureaucratic and political. I, I, I can't understand how anyone sees uh, a, a model for the welfare state. There's not a single public servant that is identified in this passage. Right. And when we professionalize compassion, we it's not compassion anymore, is it? This is the mistake Marvin Olasky many, many years ago in his book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, mm -hmm. points out where he said that uh, compassion is not giving to, it is suffering with. And this Samaritan suffers with this man to a certain extent. And I think that's the model for all of us. And it goes back to the Churchill quote, doesn't it? You know, it, it's, you have a a demand on my conscience by virtue of my virtue, not a, a, a confiscatory uh, demand, a political demand on my wealth. Besides which, you know, think of this. How is anyone benefited by having had their money taken away from them and given to other people, even, even let's say that the people in need? How is anyone morally advantaged by that confiscation of wealth? Uh, they're not. The whole core of the charity is that people surrender in a, a compassionate way, in the way the Samaritan does. Right. Now it's, it, you know, and I think it was uh, Margaret Thatcher, where I, at least I first saw it, where she points out that the Good Samaritan was wealthy. <laughs> 
Let's would, not forget. He had this parable, she said, if he didn't have money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, one of my favorites, Father, is the talents, the parable of the talents. Can you explain that? I just love this one. It's the real paradigm, isn't it? It's probably the one that I'm asked about the most. Uh, and this is another one that rankles people, you know, when, when they hear it, because this poor guy, it's the, the story of the three, in, in this version of it, there are two versions of it in the Gospels. In this version of it, I took the simpler one. Uh, one, is, one of the servants is given five talents, one is given two, and one is given one. And the master, now it's very important, pay attention at the beginning. It says he gives to each according to his ability. Well, this removes from the table whether these people had the capacity to be creative. The, the master has trust, a generous trust in the capacity of these men to meet his demands. And then he comes back after a while and the one who had five produces double, the one who has two produces double, and the one who has one, notice he doesn't lose the one. He puts it in the ground, which is a perfectly legitimate way of preserving the wealth, especially as we learned in that first, uh, the hidden treasure, and gives it to the master and the master hits the roof. <laughs> now why? Listen to what this last servant says. This is so instructive to us. The first thing he says is, I was afraid, and so I hid your money. This is the opposite of the characteristic that is required of the entrepreneur, who is a man who, or a woman who is willing to risk. Uh, so he is afraid because he doesn't trust the master. Secondly, he doesn't understand the master because then he says, I knew you were a hard man. This guy who entrusts you with his money and goes away and comes back, you could have put it to, given it to the bankers. And I would have got interest on my, my. On my money. <laughs> this must also rankle the, the, the left. But he said, I knew you were a hard man gathering where you have not scattered and reaping where you have not sown. Isn't this exactly the Marxist critique of the free economy? Isn't this the critique of profit making? That you are making profit off of something you didn't invest in, so to speak. Right. You did not sow. You're reaping what you did not sow. You're gathering what you have not scattered. You're exploiting. All wealth creation is exploitation, according uh, to this servant who doesn't understand the master and this is what sets the master off is that despite all of his generosity he's he sees this man as fearful and um hateful in a way and it's the hate directed against the master precisely because he's good right and he gets his just desserts yeah, uh, it's, you know, it reminds me of a line from Michael Novak. I think he said something like the clutch fist is not the symbol of capitalism or the capitalist. It's, it's, it's about risk. Profits come from risk. Right. And, and the person he entrusted that talent to, and by the way, the talent, I love the way you converted it to today's dollars. It's $348,000 at minimum wage. Yeah. 
And, and, and the very word talent as we use it today is derived from this biblical unit, uh, this monetary unit used in biblical times. So that's also very instructive to see how language from the scriptures uh, still informs our common uh, discourse today. Uh, I, I really think you can't understand the the Western canon, uh, that is literature, if you don't understand the scriptures, if you haven't heard the cadence, uh, particularly the King James Bible, which is the Bible I uh, quote from here, oddly enough, a Catholic priest <laughs> quoting from the uh, King, King James Bible, but it's such a m masterful linguistic creation that I thought it matched the, uh, the drama and the rhetoric of the parables themselves. This parable also makes me think about, I think it's George Gilder that loves to make this point that the wealth of these entrepreneurs like, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk and others it is amassed that they're tied to because they're so good at investing it that it, you know, they're not living high on the hog so much as investing it into human flourishing. Right, right. And, and perhaps this has something to do with the the, the lesson in, in the gospel, where he, those who have, more will be given to. You know, that if you're entrusted with something, you've proven yourself, uh, a worthy student understands his master, then you're given more. Right. And, and of course, that's viewed by the rich get richer. But no, it's people who, who have a proven track record of investing and putting at risk what they own. And then again, all of this is not about economics. I mean, economics is the the starting point, the starting point, the presumption. But it's all about the metaphor of the kingdom of God, uh, telling us something about the kingdom. And, and Father, I just have to ask because you, you you talk about how these are just timeless truths, and they are. And the parable of the two debtors, it just made me think about the current debate about forgiving student loans. Yeah. It, it, amazing, yes, how, how it transfers, right? <laughs> what, it, what was the line? Oh, I'm not going to get it right, but it was, you were only thinking about the, the kind of upper middle class med student who has a lot of debt and not not the, the person who has slaved along and now they're going to have to pay for that. Or the person who's done cultural studies, uh, getting a, a free ride on their college loan, whereas somebody who's a bricklayer is going to have to pay for that. Uh, and this debtor who is forgiven for so much has completely forgotten the generosity that he's been shown uh, and will take it out on the other guy who owes so little to him. I mean, it's just deeply instructive and drives us to think about our own circumstance. And as you say, the student debt, which wasn't the debate uh, quite at the level of intensity it is now when I wrote the book, but uh, the point, you know, is well made. Right. Well, I know Ed's got more questions for you, especially on the afterword to the book. And Father, one last real quick question. Is Tony doing anything interesting that we should know about on Netflix or any series? <laughs> well, you're... Uh, you're, you're Audience may know who you're referring to, but I'll tell you they that. do. <laughs> well, my my brother is an actor. Was on The Sopranos, among and Goodfellas, and Godfather, and no, he's retired. 
he, you know, he's, he's older than me. Remember that that uh, the Sopranos was done twenty years ago, more than twenty years. So uh, he is retired and is living next near near his daughter in uh, Florida. So I just saw him a few weeks ago and uh, had a good visit. And I net uh, Netflix. I, I uh, Facetime with him uh, every every week. Awesome. Well, Father, this has been great. It's always an honor to have you on. Thank you so much. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I just wanted to say thank you. And thank folks, we'd like to remind you, you can contact me or Ed. Send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Talking with Father Robert Sirico on his book, The Economics of the Parables, a, a book long time in, in making, as I mentioned. I think the first time Father was on, he threatened us with this book a long time ago, and we are so pleased that it's out. Most of the chapters are short, and then you get to the last chapter, and it's the afterword, and it's the longest chapter in the book. <laughs> and was it was it truly an afterword? Was this something that, that insp- you were inspired by after you had written the rest of the book? 
It was during during the writing of a Chris. You've described the the process well because I preached on these parables, obviously, for many many years, and I would make these little notes. Or every now and then, I'd have an intern and ask them to do some research on it. So it was a long time coming. I had all these files, and then one of the blessings of COVID for me was to sit down and really do the whole thing. And as I did it, obviously, other questions came to mind which I couldn't handle under the rubric of a parable mm -hmm. so i just began making a list of these things these various passages and when i was done then i just began going into depth and that was so much fun uh and made a, a whole hash of it you know i had this huge document that was all knotted up and had to pull it apart and i had some friends read it and they pull things out and put things on the other thing and then just had a ball kind of going through it piece by piece and i feel like it's it's still not done. I still have a lot of other things to say. But when I submitted it to the publisher, they looked at it. They said, this is almost a third of the book. <laughs> I said, well, I want to get everything else in. They said, well, write another book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and talk about the first one that you deal with, and it's, it's such an important point in, in today's world, is you know, moral questions about private property and wealth. That you know, it's it's almost looked at to to some people think that that the wealthy are inherently evil. I mean, we certainly get that. that you know, the one percent. Yeah, no. Th this was one of the first questions. You know, as you know, I was involved with the left for years, and one of the first things that began opening my eyes was when this friend of mine asked me, the guy who introduced me to a lot of this literature initially, said, "Well, uh, what what do you want to see?" I said, I want to see a redistribution of wealth. He said, okay, we've done it. Imagine that we've redistributed the wealth, then what? And I said, well, then everybody's happy. He said, well, what happens the next day and the day after that? And I began thinking about what that really meant. And he said, you, you're presuming that the wealth of the wealthiest people exists in their bank accounts or in their luxury items, when in point of fact, the wealth of the wealthiest people is invested in businesses. So if they're serving the consumer, mm -hmm. then they're being rewarded for that. Uh, and, and at a token amount compared to, to the benefit that it does for society as a whole. And that just began, you know, a whole series of thoughts about what is evil about wealth? What does Jesus really say about wealth? Does he say that wealth is intrinsically evil, which is one of those quotations from a theologian uh, that I uh, alluded to earlier? Uh, and he doesn't. E even in the, the, the most famous of the passages uh, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and people see that as, see, he says, go and give away all your wealth. In point of fact, that's not what Jesus first says to the man. What he first says to the man is engage in enterprise. Go and sell all that you have. <clears throat> then give to the poor. Now, that's very interesting. I mean, if, if there's a connection between what he sells and what he gives to the poor, one presumes he's to give it to the poor in order to benefit the poor, then he's going to want to get a good price on what he's selling. To the poor. So the first thing he does, and who knows how long it would take to liquidate his estate. Uh, and then Jesus doesn't even say, and give it all to the poor. He, in each of the translations, I looked in this, it just says, give it. 
give and give to the poor, even if it's everything. The point of fact is that Jesus is not saying that your wealth is evil. Not, not if he's inviting him to go and produce more of it by selling it. And then come and be my follower. And the man goes away sad because he had a great deal of wealth. <clears throat> now, first of all, Jesus invites him to come be his follower, the 13th apostle, you know, because mm-hmm. the same words that he uses in the call to Peter, <clears throat> he uses in this. And the uh, then Jesus uses this metaphor, which we all know, how hard it is for the rich to get in the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. <clears throat> what comes next? And this is where everybody forgets what comes next. Because the apostles say, then who can get into heaven? <clears throat> and he says, with man, it is impossible. With God, all things. So what's the lesson of this? That wealth is evil? No. That wealth isn't enough. It's, again, that question. It's, it's not what gets you into heaven. It's your attachment, your willingness to relinquish everything you have to purchase the pearl of great price. To go back to the, uh, the parables. To, to, and by the way, the use of the pearl there is very interesting because it's a luxury item, right? You're gonna, mm-hmm. That's the metaphor for the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells this man to go and sell all he has. He, he doesn't condemn wealth as such, especially when you look, and this is elsewhere in the afterward, where you look at Jesus' friends. Jesus goes to, this is scandalous. I'll get excommunicated for this one. <laughs> Jesus goes to the cross wearing a Seville row suit, in effect. The, the, the seamless garment today would be like a Savile Row suit, a, a very expensive piece of clothing. Uh, it had no, no seam to it. And Jesus goes, well, where did he get that from? This man who had nowhere to lay his head, where did he get that from? Well, I, he got it from one of his wealthy friends, and he had a few. He had Joseph of Arimathea who provides the, uh, the tomb, the new tomb. He he gets it from these women who are following him and giving him their money out of their resources, it says. So this is all in the backdrop. Mary of Magdala was probably a wealthy woman. Uh, Magdala being a certain place where they, they produced the, um, the purple dye, which was an expensive dye. Mm-hmm. All of these kinds of things we don't think about in context with with our Lord, because he's always pointing us beyond the material. He touches these things, but he touches them lightly. Yeah, we had uh, uh, Virginia Prostrell on to talk about her book about the fabric of civilization, which if you haven't read, you should. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And she talked because she talks about the the dyes and all of that. Well, Father, we've only got a minute left. I just have a real quick question for you that I'm just curious, and perhaps we can talk about next time. Have you discovered or are watching the series The Chosen? I have seen it. Now, there's not a new, there's just the two seasons, right? The two seasons, yes. Uh huh. I, I really enjoyed that. I like the tax collector. I love the way he's put oh. he's on the He's on the autism spectrum, is really what it is. <laughs> that, it's, it's just wonderful. And you'd figure a numbers guy would be like that. <laughs> I, I also like the way they portray, portray Jesus. You know, he is, he's human, he's fully human. He is. He is. And a Catholic, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of that, but 
<laughs> well, Father, we we have to have to let you go. We have to have you on. <laughs> yes, there you go. So, this is a, it's been great having you on again, and and we'll definitely have you on a sixth time without question. So, thank you for joining us, Rabbi Lappin. All right, what do we got next time, Ron? Uh, next week, Ed, we're live from Scaling New Heights from Orlando, All right. Florida. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern, or uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. And in the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.